0: Welcome, and thank you for joining the Unbiased Label podcast, where we believe labels belong on clothes, not people. On this podcast, we have real talk focused on all things fashion and culture with a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia. I'm your host, Zara Karutz, and I launched Unbiased Label after earning my master's in fashion critical studies from Central Saint Martins in London. I'm now a PhD fashion studies researcher at Massey University, and I'm obsessed with pushing boundaries by holding deep conversations with meaning. Some people associate fashion with words like vapid or shallow. But really, fashion is a visual and material reflection of society, and it's a complicated system of communication. It shapes belonging, identity, and emotions. On this podcast, we believe fashion holds a lot of power that can create change towards a more equitable world, all while still having fun and being creative. This episode of Unbiased Label is a conversation with Bruce Weldon, who is a New York City-based luxury fashion business insider. For over 20 years, Bruce's retail leadership success has extended across brands such as Prada, Gucci Armani, John Varvatos, David Yurman, and Bergdorf Goodman. Please join us in a conversation looking and examining a new approach to the luxury retail market with a combination of business savvy infused with a clear, creative, artistic vision rooted in a unique personal style.
1: are you? How are you?
0: I'm so excited to talk to you. How's it going?
1: Really, really well. It's funny. Saturday has been a busy day. I'm thrilled we're doing this, and um, I'm glad that you uh, included me.
0: So we are going to talk about New York. We're going to talk yeah. fashion, retail, luxury. We're going to just talk about everything.
1: Yeah. Take over the call. Take over the call.
0: I call you the retail king because you've so- been in the game a while.
1: I'm the oldest person you know that sells dresses for a living, Say,
0: <laughs> <laughs> And you have sold quite a lot of fashion.
1: I started my career working for mean French people in Dallas, Texas. I went to the competition, which was Stanley Korshack. And then when a buying position came open, a friend of mine had moved to Bergdorf as the luxury fashion buyer. And she recommended me and I got the position of men's fashion buyer she was the luxury sportswear buyer and i was the men's designer collection buyer so i was with Bergdorf goodman for five years then i went to john Varvados as director of retail because i wanted to get multi-door experience and john's a really good guy he was launching his brand and then following that i went to prada because i loved everything about prada and then i went to gucci uh, to work with one of the finest people in the industry who was appointed as president there. And then I went to Armani with the CEO that I had a great respect for. And then David Yurman, uh, because I was enticed by their newly appointed CEO. And I walked like a moth to the flame and I did it.
0: And now, where are you? What are you doing? Are you selling dresses yourself?
1: Um, we will always all sell dresses for a living. If anyone in retail thinks that they're in marketing, if anyone thinks that they run e-com and they're too proud to step into the store or know what we do in the ditch, then they don't know retail and they're not doing their job well. Uh, I'm launching a company, All Eleven, and one of the prerequisites or recommendations as we take clients on is everyone in the corporate office works three Saturdays a year in the store. It sounds like they would naturally do that anyway, but they're not. Some of them are not, all of them. But being store side, you learn so much. Uh, Over the past 20 years at Bergdorf Goodman, I would be in the store on Saturday from noon to four. I would learn what was missing in the collections aside from what I would read in the reports on Monday. So it gave me an advantage and I would know the client better what they were responding to and what they were not willing to step into. Uh, When I went to John Barbados, I worked the stores on Saturdays because it was a new business, usually with new teams. In the case of the Soho store, whenever I was in New York Saturday there, we would have maybe 250, 150 to 250 people on a weekday Saturday at Christmas, we could have 1,500 people in uh, three or 4,000 square foot space. It was a cattle drive on Saturdays. Uh, the fashion audience reaction to that brand was just wonderful. So I would work in the store on Saturdays just for coverage. Again, I would learn what people were responding to, what was missing from the collection, what business we were walking.
0: So what are your thoughts on fashion in New York? Because pre COVID, pre-pandemic, you would see in BOF and the the news headlines, fashion in New York is is changing. I don't want to say dying. Let's go
1: ahead and say what people were saying. Um, People were saying that fashion was dead, or I'm sorry, brick and mortar was dead. Yeah,
0: exactly. And
1: the truth is uh, E-com was building a business because it's convenient. The other thing about E-com is if you want something specifically, you have a better chance finding it online because you find the world when you open up e And then if you go to a boutique, in a certain way, you're limited to what they have. But they're finding ways to open up the world also from your store visit into their boutique and you actually buy it while you're shopping there. I think that's great. When we say brick and mortar is dead, it's not. People will always want to touch feel. People will always want to engage with experts. If you do not have a successful brick and mortar business, you do not have experts meeting the final consumer inside your store locations. If you have experts in your stores, you will always have a line at the door, and you will always have a crowd, and you will always have a thriving business. If you're hiring people that don't understand fashion, they don't know what walked the runway in Yojimoto 10 years ago. They don't know who the designer is at Celine right now that used to be at Saint Laurent. If they don't have an interest in that, if they don't know that, They can't speak to that final consumer as an expert, because in most cases, the consumer is smarter than than they are at that point. And the consumer knows it and they don't want advice from a network. They, They just really don't. It's a waste of their time. So people want experts in brick and mortar and people want emotionally engaged people. There's a dance, you have to be fully respectful and then you have to have an embrace and you have to go back and forth with that. If you smother the client, they run out the door screaming. If you know how to respect the first three minutes and let them browse around and let them say that they don't want help and don't shut down and go stand in the corner and chat with your friends, forcing them to interrupt you when they actually do want your help. If you're available, if you're postured, and if you're well-appointed as, as a person, they're going to want you and they're going to be loyal to you. You create your own loyalty by the quality of service and the expertise that you give the final consumer.
0: I'm wondering your thoughts on consumer brick-and-mortar stores changing as far as creating an experience.
1: When stores are trying to create experiences and they have nonsense in their entryway, uh, that they're trying to create their own little like retail Disneyland or their art exposition. I went to Loewe, one of the most excellent sellers I've ever encountered in my career that I worked with for three years, was there. And he walked me through the store with a friend and he was telling us about all the art because that brand requires their associates to do it, obviously. Like he just went into mode of spewing off information about all the artists on the wall. And at the end of walking us through three floors, telling us about 11 different artists, I looked at him, I said, you never heard of these artists until you worked here, did you? And he laughed and he said, you're totally right. Like it's not real, it's not authentic and it's not sincere and it's not interesting. Allegedly Nike and Soho Budgets a million dollars to change out the experience uh, once a quarter. So they're highly investing in the experience. And then you go up to buy something, and three associates are chatting amongst themselves, and you can't get the shoe or the track pant that you want. So, if I would tell you, if when stores are trying to create an experience to enhance brick and mortar, all you have to do is go to good old fashioned retail ownership, proprietary action, full interest in the customer. Don't put a dollar on the customer. Uh, Don't try to figure out if they're going to spend or if they're not going to spend. If they have money, if they don't have money, don't try to kick the tire and suss them out. Step into ownership, step into hospitality. One of my best managers in the last business that I was in Believed everything that I believed about retail. And I can't even take credit for it because she believed it naturally. She stepped into the business, moved here from the West Coast. Uh, She did it kind of on her own. But if I would give ideas, she believed it easily because it was already under the umbrella of her belief system. So the hospitality there, everyone got a glass of champagne, a cup of coffee. Or a scotch on the rocks. And it was a good scotch. And it was a really uh, high-priced bottle of champagne. If you're going to give an experience, don't give the cheap stuff. If you're going to give an experience and you're expecting them to spend 10, 20, 30, $50,000, serve them as if you expect them to spend that. And so give the good stuff. Don't cut back on the experience. And in my stores, we would... S- it on hospitality. And we we didn't try to do events because people, if I have a million dollars or a billion dollars and someone says, please come to my cocktail party at my retail store, I really want, I may go to be nice, but I really would reply back and say, I can buy my own cocktails. Thank you. I don't need to like show up to cheap drinks, probably a little bit tepid and temperature and rub shoulders with a bunch of people I don't know. I just really don't want to do it. So we would make every shopping moment the high value, high level experience with hospitality. And then we would stay engaged with service.
0: Why is luxury fashion so judgy?
1: It's interesting you ask that. Every business, instead of making the targets be as warm and engaged as you can. When I used to train store teams, I would train them and I would walk away and they're like, God, he wants us to be pushy. And I would spin on my heel and say, you misunderstood my message. Pushy will shove people out the door. Interested will draw people to you. Interested often includes listening. So instead of making the targets, I want everyone in my retail sales force to be a good listener. I want everyone in my sales team to be fully interested in the client. You need the targets to be engaging. You need the targets to be interested. How many drinks do you serve to the client? Do you give them space within the first three minutes and remain available? Those need to be the targets. Right now, the targets are if you're selling are you selling more per transaction than everyone else in the store? So it's called KPIs. It's called dollars per transaction. That's a target. Average sale is a target. Maybe the same target I've been out of it for a minute. Um, And then they'll do average basket. They'll do units per transaction. And they will also do all those numerical things. If those are your targets, people are treating clients as foot traffic and uh kpi uh factors and they're not treating them as humans and people and potential clients that even if you don't buy today i know that you like the brand i know that we had a good time together and you enjoyed working with me and they don't keep in touch with those people because they didn't buy today
0: I want to drill down because Mm -hmm. notoriously, fashion as an industry is built on insider outsider agency. It's the, the idea of, do you belong in this arena?
1: It's foolishness. And if people operate that way, you're hiring the wrong people.
0: Where are we right now in the world of fashion? Is fashion leading society and culture or are they following right now? What do you think?
1: Fashion used to lead artistically and then margin and sell through became a bigger target than artistic interest in whatever the collection was or would be that day. Prada is doing something super smart to where they'll be expertly creative on the runway, and then buy it in a very limited way. If you work in a store and someone wants more than one of the dresses, the transitioning into understanding the uh, uh, smart strategy was a little tough, but almost if, when I talk to people on their teams, they're proud to say, I have one in your size, buy it, or someone else is taking it instead of we have 13 units and many stores having runway pieces in remote areas. To me, does it make sense? Let them come to the port cities of New York, Los Angeles, Houston, like all, all of those major hubs. Let them go there for it or let them buy it online. Another thing Prada is doing is they will sell the actual pieces from the runway that walk the runway on art auction house, like Phillips or something like that. It's a genius.
0: That's an interesting point. Do you feel the whole notion of fashion capitals, do you still think that that's a relevant concept?
1: I do think it's a relevant concept because that's where you're really going to sell the art of fashion. And then the alternate is the core offering from every brand's collection. If you really fund units and sizes in core collections, you're going to make a bunch of money and not walk business. And then if you limit the production and units of fashion, it keeps it precious and it keeps it highly revered and highly respected. If runway ever shows up at an outlet, you're going to lose your brand.
0: So it's still the notion of exclusivity that is driving fashion.
1: We're returning to that in uh fiscally intelligent way yes it probably was fueled with sell-through and margin goals but it's turning into the intelligent approach to exclusivity and scarcity like people respond to if i can't have it i want it so that's showing up nicely in a lot of brands these days that are working really smart another thing you touched on earlier that i failed to reply to um COVID has almost auto-corrected the over, uh, population of retail stores. And that also affects staffing in the stores and hiring ex- experts. The more stores you have, the smaller talent pool you have in each community. So if you have more stores, you reduce your talent pool. And then you have to hire people that in no way are attached to what it takes to be an expert. They don't possess the qualities. They don't have the interest, but you have to hire someone to open the doors and ring a sale. Um, COVID is correcting that a little bit. For example, 20 years ago, Prada had 10 stores. Now they probably have 30. I don't know the number. Uh, Saint Laurent had 10 stores. Now they have 27 or 30. I don't know the number, but everyone overexpanded. Some stores have 130 retail locations really oh my god sell it online and then go to the places where it really matters so a lot of those non-productive locations have closed during covid i hope we've learned something and i hope we continue in that way somewhat like i I don't want us to be fully limited to what our experience what the experience of a pandemic has done to our business.
0: I I call you the king of pop culture because that's something that's always reflected in your communication in one way or another. What are your thoughts on pop culture and what that means to you? And how does that resonate with you?
1: Pop culture, I'm halfway between Andy Warhol and Billie Eilish. I love the Mm. 70s. When I talked earlier about everyone chasing the KPIs and these are the targets, my target has always been the vibe. I remember a meeting where we're looking at businesses that are not performing and someone's sitting at the conference table. What are the KPIs in that store? What are the units per transaction? And they're really like, what's this? What's that? And I'm like, what is the vibe? Like, What do people feel when they walked in? My grandfather was a Pentecostal minister. So when you walked in, you felt something. And I was aware from that of the value of the vibe. And when I was at Bergdorf Goodman, I had a big blow up photograph in my office of Brooke Astor because I wanted people to walk in, in the men's store across the street from the women's store. It was truly like a old mansion and it had this like grand staircase and i would ask my associates to walk their clients down the staircase and talk about the due date for their alterations and everything like that so they would feel the building and the venue of the space barney's didn't have the luxury staircase brooke asked her on my wall i wanted it to feel like her mansion and i wanted the first floor with brunella cucinelli and Charvet and Laura Piana to feel like you were in her mansion. I wanted the second floor with Brioni and Keaton to feel like you were in her mansion. And then when you went to the third floor, and it was all the designer collections, and it was modern, and the music was popping and a bit different, uh, I wanted it to feel like Brookaster was traveling for a month, all of her grandkids were throwing a party in her empty home and they were going to clean it up and fix things before she got back. But when you got to three, you were still at Brooke Astor's, but it was her grandkids and it was a party. So I had that. When I went to Prada, it's like, what does the vibe need to be? And I put two photographs in a closet door because you couldn't have anything exposed at Prada. And I had a photograph of studio 54 and I had the photograph of the logo of Hermes because I wanted Prada to feel the luxury that you feel when you go into Hermes or just the impression of that brand, but then also be Studio 54 to where it was sexy. Uh, There's a little bit of outrage to it and a little bit of a party again.
0: Who do you think the most influential person is in fashion?
1: Who do I think is the designer of the century? It's Mucha Prada. The brand is always relevant. The brand includes more than just designing clothes. It's about architecture. It's about art. It's about a total embrace of the best of aesthetics. It really is. So there's a real belief system to everything about her and that brand. And I think that in a 100 years, she'll be the most notable of the century or the blended centuries as we're now in 2021. She started in 1980 or 90.
0: To me, fashion is creating the fantasy,
1: the dream. I I create training sessions on the dream for all of my sales teams, because people come to fashion. People come to stores for the dream. All brands are probably excellent at their marketing and advertising and all the pages in Vogue are hopefully pretty. Then they do the runway shows and they spend... $100,000 100000 or $500,000 or maybe more on the runway shows, and they're impressive, and they're the dream. And then they build these well-appointed, architecturally superior venues in many cases, and it's the dream. And then they don't hire right, or they don't train well, and the person that touches the final consumer kills the dream And the client keeps their dream dollars in their dream pocket and goes down the street and finds someone that can represent the dream all the way through rather than uh, the broken element of you walk into a store, you lose your stuff and the dream is gone.
0: For me, when you look at contemporary context of who's changing the game, right? Like who is changing luxury fashion? There's, a couple of key players. I would say there's Olivia Roosting at Beaumont. Yep. There is Michele and, Gucci. and
1: I will tell you, and I think these numbers are right. When he was appointed as the designer, their businesses, in many cases, almost doubled per store location. It was crazy. And it was because he had a real design point of view. Frida Janini was probably a skipper doll to all the other Barbies. She wasn't inventive. She relied heavily on the archives and heritage pieces, and that's almost building your core. So there's a value there, but she didn't get the attention the way he does. And he really uh, diversified the interest in the brand because he appealed to the luxury consumer and he appealed to... I don't call it urban because I'm almost offended by that as a word or as a phrase, but he appealed to everybody. The broader audience. The
0: broader audience. And he also, in my opinion, led the way with the gender-neutral revolution. The gender-fluidity. Yeah, it certainly showed up now, didn't
1: it? In addition to diversity, he'll put people who are not at all considered what society would call beautiful and he'll put people in the clothes in the magazines and they're not pretty at all but they're stunning and they're they're memorable so I, I think he, he includes everybody
0: the thing that I, I take away from this conversation is fashion yeah. is such a business and I think that we have all these expectations on the fashion yeah. industry the designers to represent culture, to have meaning, to move us forward. And we really want fashion to speak for us. But after speaking with you, I realized it all comes down to a bottom line in a dollar.
1: If you treat the client beautifully and magically and engage in open relationships without uh, expectation, you, you have to dance between, I'm going to love as many people as I can that walk into my store. And then you have to also have the other side of your brain saying, I'm going to take as much money from these people that I love when they walk into my store. Like you have to balance both parts, but the client has to feel the love, not the take. One of the best sellers I ever worked with sold more than anybody could in a room in a brand. He has a huge hole in his heart. He wants everybody to love him. And while he's getting close to you and begging you to love him, he's reaching his hand around to your back pocket and stealing your black American express. (laughs) And that, to me, is (laughs) uh, you you need to love people. You need people to be impressed by you. You need to listen and you need to be respectful to them. And you need to take their money. They need to pay you for it.
0: So interesting. You know, as you speak, I just think about the fashion side of retail. You really have to be a person that has a lot of different. Qualities. I mean, that's not an easy job. That is you know, we think fashion, and unless you're yeah. in the retail game and you're in the business, you don't even really realize what a yeah. big part of the store side you have to plays. be a
1: good parent to your store teams. You have to coddle and challenge. You have to customize to each different person on your team. And then to your clients, you have to be an excellent mate or D. And know how to embrace and know each one by name and acknowledge them at a higher level than they would experience without you in the room. You have to love fashion. You have, you to, have love to love people. Fashion. You have to love yourself. You have to love God, whoever your God is. Like You just have to love.
0: <laughs> well, I love you. You're an amazing person. Mm-hmm. You uplift my life and I always grow and learn you, from you. You so. give
1: me things as well and I love Thank you. you.
0: you for listening to the unbiased label podcast if you've enjoyed the show then please connect with us on social media tell a friend and leave a review please tune in next time for more conversation on fashion and culture from a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia until next time stay well